0: Unto you, a child is born. Famous last line of what children's book? Anyone know? (laughs) The best Christmas pageant ever. Yeah, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's about 80 pages paperback, not very big. Very funny and profound. The last line comes from the only one in the pageant, in, in the story, that actually has a speaking part. It's the angel of the Lord, speaking to the shepherds, and it's played by the youngest of the Herdman family. Six kids and practically no parenting. And they're the terror of the local school, and they become the terror of the local church when they show up looking for food. And the youngest one, Gladys, who's also the meanest one, is the one who has the one line, and she makes the most of it. It's also the last line of the book. Hey, unto you a child is born. do a lot of gift-giving this time of year. I noticed a lot of gift-giving just now during the greeting time. Can't hardly step through an aisle without kicking over a gift. Time for presents. Gifts galore. Packages, parcels, bags, right? Anybody run out of wrapping paper? That's why the kids jump out of bed at dark 30. And coffee consumption among parents exceeds even the regular Monday morning amount. Gift-giving is a major part of our Christmas celebration, of God's gift to all mankind, the Savior, which is Christ the Lord. In every gift, we are to remember the giver of every good and perfect gift, Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow of change. So we give to one another, and maybe, probably, we feel compelled to offer our best to God himself there at the manger. The song The Little Drummer Boy says our finest gifts we bring to lay before the king. An old hymn called In the Bleak Midwinter proposes a gift for every character around the manger to give. Many other Christmas carols prompt us to bring our praise, honor, and homage. And the wise men, again, remind us of the importance of gifts. And then there is Mary gave the gift of her own body for nine months, and Joseph who gave his name, his protection, and his provision for all of his life. Now these gifts are pretty profound, as well as practical. How can we hope to match such gifts? Maybe you even feel exhausted by all the giving, all the shopping, all of the parking all of the wrapping, all of the labels, and then, of course, once they're all open, all the cleaning up of all the stuff that's been taken apart. It can be quite a sacrifice, all the giving, can't it? But really, really, what do we have to give? What can we give to the newborn king that he would need or want? We have nothing except what God has already given us. We are nothing apart from his love. Dust you are, God told Adam, and to dust you shall return. We borrow every breath from God. We have reason, we have consciousness, we have a will only because he has given them to us. We have made nothing, we only care for things and help them to grow. God is the creator. We are part of creation, and our best efforts are often given to destroying ourselves in creation as violently as we can until we become new, born again, rescued and redeemed, and join God's great rescue mission using what he's given us. So what it really boils down to is that we can only offer our attention and our decision And our broken hearts for a home. So that the king who prepares a place for us to live one day. Will live in us until the day we live with him. And because that is all we have. It is all he asks. He does not expect from us what only he can do. He only calls us to be vessels. Willing participants. Open and available. And he will do the really hard stuff. He gives us gifts so we will let him show us how to use them so that his gifts to each of us will become his gifts to all of us just as he was and is. So let us offer him what we have. No comparisons, no envy, no fear or shame, no regrets or restrictions. Bring to him whatever you have and watch what he does with it. Learn to use what he's given you. Stir up the gift, Paul told Timothy. Keep it sharp, even if it doesn't seem like much. Because the usefulness, the effectiveness, and value is not in the gift, but in the God who gave the gift and who is working through it in your life. The gift itself is far less important than our attitude in offering it, as Cain and Abel attest. Ephesians 4, 7 and 8. Grace was given to each of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Based on the gift each one has received in 1 Peter 4.10, use it to serve others as good managers of the varied grace of God. For every gift shows God's grace to man. We bring mere loaves and fish, and he feeds a multitude. I've said this many times in response to a kind word about a sermon because it reminds me of the scripture that says, Paul plants, Paul's waters, but who gives the increase? Each have a part to play in God's plan, but it is God's plan. And he is in charge of both the timing and the results. We bring loaves of bread, but he made the grain and the sources of all the other ingredients. He created the possibility of bread, the miracle of digestion, the pleasure of tasting and consuming, and every atom involved in all these processes. We bring the fish, but he created every creature that swims, the ore from which the metal for the fish hook and gutting knife was mined, the plants from which the fibers were taken for the rope, the line, and the nets, and every herb from which spices are taken to season the crispy bits of fried fish. We bring our shame and fig leaves, and God clothes us. We bring hand tools, and he shows us how to build an ark. We follow him without knowing where we are going, and he leads our descendants to the Promised Land. We bring medieval weapons, and God knocks down an impregnable wall. We bring lowly social status, fearful doubts, a few trumpets, torches, pitchers, and a pitiful number of volunteers. God routes a massive army. We bring five smooth stones, a sling and a staff, and the giant comes tumbling down. We bring a small vessel of oil about to run out, and God makes a small fortune and freedom. We bring only ourselves to hide by a small brook, and yet God sends ravens to bring bread and meat twice a day for years of drought. We marry a prostitute. Bring a foreigner into our community. God uses the bloodline for a king and a savior. We bring the smell of fish. (laughs) Or the traitorous robes of a tax collector. Or the hopes and dreams of a disciple of John. And he changes the world by confounding and puzzling us at every turn. Never quite doing things as we expect. We bring a small boat and some oars and inadequate strength against the power of nature and he renders us speechless with awe that even the wind and the sea obey him. We bring our last two mites and he honors us more than all the rich. We bring a withered hand and he heals us in front of everyone. We bring multiple demons, scars, and chains. And he gives us freedom, peace, and a mission to spread him to those we know. We hesitate to bring the man who is not our husband. He gives us the Messiah. We bring cynical, calculating self-protection, asking what truth could even be. And he does not blame us for what he is about to suffer at our hands. We bring confusion, pain, and fear. He gives us wisdom, comfort, and courage. We bring illness and injury, and he gives us healing and hope. We die and rot for days. He brings us back to life. We bring a tomb and spices, and he uses them for a little while. Just enough to let us know they counted for honor, but that he doesn't need them anymore because he's doing so much more for us than we ever dreamed a God could do or would want to do. This doesn't even begin to discuss the gifts of the Spirit or the gift of the Spirit, to the church. God is the best giver. His gifts are not cheap, they're not late, and they're not pointless. He has plans for every gift he gives. And his grace is evident in each one. Is there any doubt that God is in charge? Any doubt that he's in control? Any doubt Of God's complete and utter sovereignty over the entire universe, down to the atomic forces and up to the astronomic ones. God holds together every molecule and planet system, He lends every creature breath. He gives life to every man and woman. With that life, He also gives us the free will to choose good or evil to accept him as Lord and Savior, or to put ourselves on the throne of our lives and perish thereby. But even our ability to do good, to accept him as Lord and Savior, is given to us by his hand. He allows us to see the truth that we need him, that we are not enough, that we can have hope and salvation only through him. Our free will is most obvious when we make clear our choice of eternal destinies. For it is the most important decision anyone can make. Once we see the truth, once we understand our sinfulness, our helplessness, our need for a Savior, once we begin to grasp the mercy and justice and tenacious love of our Father for his sinful children, we have a decision to make. A life to live and to die. After that, the judgment. But if we choose him, we are saved by grace through faith. And his grace is evident again. Luke seventeen nine and 10. Does the master thank the slave because he did what he was commanded? In the same way, when you have done all that you are commanded, you should say, we're good-for-nothing slaves. We've only done our duty. We are not the power. We only allow God to be in us. He is the power. Maybe you feel like you only have five loaves and two fish to offer today. Noah had strong sons and tools. Abraham had faith, but also fear and indecisiveness. Jacob had family problems for three generations and was good at tricking people. Joseph had dreams nobody wanted to hear. Moses Moses had speech issues, temper issues, and a warrant out for his arrest. Samuel was himself an answer to prayer, but he owned nothing and lived in the tabernacle on charity. Job had Severe asset depreciation (laughs) and some root friends and a nasty illness and a hateful enemy, but a great God. Ruth had a broken mother-in-law and nothing to live on. David had a sling and the medieval equivalent of a demo disc of songs. and he had a lot of jealous older brothers. Solomon had no understanding to run his father's kingdom complete with rivals, scandal, intrigue, and recovery from a civil war. Daniel and his friends had determination and courage but everything else was taken from them. Nehemiah had a dream and a broken heart for his home. Esther had a secret identity and a stubborn guardian. Every missionary, every parent, every husband and wife, every elder, pastor, and teacher, everyone who witnesses to God's character must accept that we are not enough. That we can only fulfill God's plans with God's help. But when we let God work through us, he also works in us. And we find the fruit of our labor to be very sweet. For our God is not stingy. He gives extravagantly. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured out into your lap. You'll have to change your clothes. There will not be room enough to contain it, from Luke 6:38. Think about what God did with each of these characters from Scripture that I've described. It wasn't because they were particularly special. Some of them had some worldly qualifications, perhaps, but all of them were inadequate. They're just people, like you and me. Same problems, same hang-ups. Some of them we look at and go, man, glad I'm not like them. Glad I'm not like that Pharisee. Wait. They changed history because God changed them. And he did it through what they had, no matter how inadequate it seemed to them. Did any of them offer anything good that wasn't already a gift? Did any of them know how their story was going to go when they started? Or when they finished? They knew only their lack, their inexperience, their incompetence. Moses even tried to argue with God about this. Oh, you don't want me. I have a stuttering problem. God's response. Who made man's mouth? Who made every man and woman? And all of our circumstances? Who writes history? Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? We must remember, we are not God. God only makes good things. Genesis 1 repeats this theme for each day, except when he gets to mankind, where God says, this is very good. Extra good. More good. Gooder. We are special to him. We are not able to match him. Our value to him is not what we do or make. Our value to him is just us being his. Loving him and each other. And joining him in his work. Nothing more is needed. Good thing, because we really don't have anything more to give. Nothing more than a decision. Because we do have to decide about his gift. Do we need it? Can we find hope apart from him? Can happiness, goodness, justice be found anywhere else? Will we accept the greatest gift that could ever be given? The gift of himself. And the transformation that goes with it. For with every gift from God comes change We cannot accept him and remain as we always were. Either he rules and reigns in our hearts, transforming us, equipping us, and forever altering our entire point of view and destiny, or he stands at the door, knocking, waiting, longing for us to accept that we are helpless, hopeless, poor, Blind and naked on our own, that we need a Savior, and that He is that Savior. He is unwilling that any should perish, but He allows us to have what we insist on. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God's grace is evident again do it accept the gift you know you need him and offer him what you have even though he gave it to you he knows how it should be used and he knows how you can join him accept the offer of his life and offer him back all of your own go to the manger Go to the cross. Go to the empty tomb. And tell the world of God's gift in your life, in your heart, in your breath, in your world, and especially in your future. For God has come, and he is the gift, the only gift we really need. He came as one of our children that we might become his children. Hey, unto us a child is born and the greatest gift ever has been given. Merry Christmas.